what was one of the times during your career where it was like, holy shit, what am I doing? This is definitely a low point. When you sell and, and it goes higher, there's, there's an interesting psychological effect. And that really creates a low point because it's what you could have done, but right. of course didn't do. Are there certain patterns that repeat themselves that you've kind of observed that are misconceptions? There's one that just jumps out and it's a, it's a saying that, you know, rings alarm bells for anyone that hears them. And it's different this time. Right. <laughs> I've been around long enough to see a few cycles, uh, specifically the, the tech boom of the 90s. And then, you know, mining boom that followed and tech and housing boom in 07. And these cycles are, are all, you know, a derivation of the original Tulip run. Today, I'm joined by Peter Catavatis, Senior Investment Advisor at Canaccord Wealth Management. At Canaccord Wealth Management, Peter implements a comprehensive, consultative discovery process to identify his clients' values, relationships, and goals, and establishes a roadmap to help them achieve their financial goals as well as their life goals. Once established, Peter works with his trusted team of professionals and leans on their deep experience with investments, retirement plans, and wealth transitions across generations to execute on the plan. Establishing a suitable portfolio of investments is Peter's primary function for his clients. Peter and his team aim to ensure each financial plan is customized in a bespoke manner to meet unique needs personal goals for his clients. As a disclaimer, Peter Catavatis is an investment advisor with Canaccord Wealth Management. Any information presented in this message is for the informational purposes only and is not a solicitation or an offer of securities. The views expressed are those of Peter Catavatis and not necessarily of Canaccord. Listeners are cautioned not to act on any information without first obtaining the advice of a licensed investment professional. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, so I, I love to start the talk out by going through your background a little bit and what got yourself into this industry. Could you tell us a story? Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting one, one that many probably have lived through as well, and it's, it's a family story. So mm. my first day at Canaccord was 1982, and if you're watching this on video, I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was eight years old at the time, and back then there was, there was no electronic trading. There was no computers. Everything was run, paper, and my dad was an investment advisor. So a stockbroker, which was the term back in the day. And I was running tickets to the desk, the floor. It was it was pretty crazy, kind of neat to be part of as a kid, literally eight years old. At eight years so, old. <laughs> eight years old. So that was my first taste. And basically, I would spend summers, you know, a week, a couple days, pro D days, I'd come in. So there's receptionists, one specifically at Canaccord that still remembers me from that time. <laughs> and, you know, I was the kid running around. So it was dinner time conversation always part of the industry. But as I grew up, you know, moved away, went to university in Ontario. I think we all do at some point. We don't like our parents. I uh, didn't talk to my dad very much, but wrote securities course and literally called them up and said, hey, looking for an assistant. So came back and joined full time in 96. In 96. And, you know, the, the 80s, they're known for the wild days, kind of wild west. Obviously, like you said, 
no electronic transfers really so everything had to be called in and a lot of cash being thrown around back then hey well also even quotes were a closed circuit television <laughs> to a tv screen on the floor which was a you know picture of the chalkboards so yeah. it was very weird very different to today where information is instantaneous global right yeah so much more efficient and you know overall it's got to be a positive thing for everybody I mean, it comes with higher regulation as well, and certain people can't get away with things that they used to as well. And that's a good thing. And that's a great thing. Regulations are a pain. Yeah. No one likes them, but in the end, they're a good thing. And when used properly, they keep people out of harm's way. And that's a... Of course. As somebody who's been in the uh, industry for, for as long as you have, what kind of clients do you look for and how do you find them and... And yeah, what kind of client do you like to see? Well, it's changed a lot over the years. I'd say when, you know, back in 96, there was no online trading. And even when it was eventually introduced, there still was a human on the other side of that computer clicking OK due to securities regulations. So as things changed and opened up and fees came down for the do-it-yourselfers, it really changed what we do. You know, we weren't order takers anymore. It was more of a value add. And really just helping people and helping people ensuring their investments are suitable has really become the bellwether of our industry. So whether you're in more holistic financial planning or a deal side or something in between, yeah. it's really about ensuring you know, people's investments match their needs and keep them happy. Right. And for our viewers who, who may not know, I think this would be actually quite helpful if you walk me through how the monetization has changed in a broker's world from the 80s up until now. Simply put, in the 80s, it was only one way, commission on a trade. Right? Yeah. People buy, people sell. There was a markup and that was the fee we earned. Now, more and more, arguably all transactions are becoming fee-based, which is generally a percentage of the total assets are charged, you know, one twelfth per month. And if your account grows, your fee goes up. If your account shrinks, your fee goes down. And it really puts the advisor and the client's, you know, desires and, and motivations on the same side of the table. Absolutely. And so then for, you know, for our viewers as well, what are some of the benefits of having an advisor over doing it yourself? I think it's ensuring the suitability keeping people out of trouble. As we see you know, markets get volatile, past three, four years, we've seen VIX spikes over 20, 30, 50 back in March, 2020. Those are the moments, the panicky moments that create behaviors that hurt you long-term. And having an advisor, a sounding board, someone to ensure that your goals haven't changed, so your investment strategy shouldn't change, really helps keep you even keeled through those stormy waters. When the market's going straight up, it's easy. You don't need an advisor necessarily, maybe just trying to find value somewhere. But really, it's those turbulent times there where we earn our stripes. No kidding. We're going through right now, you know, we've had so much time of that straight up that you mentioned. and But it's bound to happen that dips do occur. And it's about really weathering the storm and, and positioning yourself during the good times and having the discipline during the good times to be able to weather the storm. Definitely. So do you find that there's a big difference in, say, a 20-year-old's portfolio compared to a 50-year-old's portfolio? And how do you kind of find out who needs what when you're advising your clients? That's a really good question. I think anyone who's done any work and taken courses in financial management or 
investment advice. The textbooks say a 20-year-old should be able to take high risks. They're not married, they're single, they have no dependents. And a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old should be shifting into bonds, going more conservative. And that makes sense from just a pure age point of view. And it is correct for many people. But it doesn't take into account people's personalities. Mm. I have 20-year-old clients that don't like risk. They've, they've amassed a certain amount of wealth, anyway they have, and losing that is way scarier than making more. I have entrepreneurial 70-year-old clients who love risk, and my job becomes kind of toning them down to ensure <laughs> that it matches their needs. But there's nothing wrong with risk if you understand, and you understand the downside and the perils of what you're going into. Mm. And a reward comes from risk, and if you understand that, I'll go back to my happiness point of view. Ensuring your, your, your portfolio is suitable for you, that will what will keep you happy with your portfolio. Mm. When you look at it and there's a lot of high-risk names and you don't like risk, that's a scary thing. You're stressed out. <laughs> and when you're looking at a bond ladder and you're hoping for high returns, you're not going to be happy. It's really about finding that balance. That's really good insight. And, and kind of speaking of riskier, more volatile industries, but again, with the high risk comes high reward, cryptocurrency. Where's your position on crypto and blockchain, DeFi, and, and as many of your clients uh, getting into that space right now? Well, I you know, obviously can't make any specific recommendations as far as uh, even sectors, let alone individual sure. names. But I will say that in the risk sphere of zero to 10, crypto's in the 10 plus range. So it really takes a special client right. who will dabble. In crypto, I don't have any clients that are 100% crypto or anything like that. It's just not prudent, really, to be overweight any sector, let alone an extremely high risk one, which I would call crypto extremely high risk. Right. So, you know, if you were speaking to somebody who was looking to get involved with public venture capital, maybe small cap companies that we're both very highly active in, what kind of advice would you give them to get started? Do you know what you're getting into? Would be my first question. As you know, understanding these are volatile, stormy waters pretty much all the time. Unlike, you know, certain large cap equities, which are also volatile, they just don't move as much as fast as a percentage as juniors do. And so really completely comprehending what they're getting into is the most important thing. The answer is yes. Sail away. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. When cannabis is hot, you know, you just hear of your average Joe who's wanting to just buy a cannabis stock. They don't even know what the company does, but they just know maybe it's got a good ticker symbol and it's got an influential person on it, but they don't even know actually what the company even does. And here's my money, you know? Yeah. FOMO investing is, is always scary because that's really what it is at that point. It's a very real thing. Absolutely. So are there any common misconceptions that you found people having over the years about public venture capital? And are there certain patterns that repeat themselves that you've kind of observed that are misconceptions? There's one that just jumps out and it's a, it's a saying that, you know, rings alarm bells for anyone that hears them. And it's different this time. Right. <laughs> I've been around long enough to see a few cycles, uh, specifically the, the tech boom of the 90s. And then, you know, mining boom that followed and tech and housing boom in 07. And these cycles are, are all, you know, a derivation of the original tulip run right? <laughs> many years ago. So it's, it's all about greed and fear. 
And when fear gets extreme, you know, prices get disjointed. And when greed gets extreme, again, prices get disjointed. It's never exactly the same, of course. It's always different. COVID, for example, is is a left field black swan that even if you saw coming, no one could time. But it creates opportunities. And that's where, you know, when you hear paradigm shift and create is different this time, I know it's not. Okay, so the tulip concept that you mentioned, just for anybody that might not know, can you explain what the tulip concept was? What happened? There was a phrase, and I'm going to screw up the dates, but it's in the 1800s, I believe, yeah. in tulip trading in Holland, where demand for tulip bulbs went parabolic. And it's a case that was never to be broken until Bitcoin came around. I just Googled it. 1634. This was like oh. the first, this was when yeah. trading first started in the 1600s. Isn't that crazy? And then the tulips just had this incredible value to them just because of this hype that we're talking about. It's so funny how, you know. It, just... it was a buy high, sell higher attitude <laughs> with the idea that there'll always be someone else that I can sell it. To. Yeah. And that basically becomes a game of musical chairs. Yeah. And when the music stops, there's no one to sell it to. I might go try that with dandelions soon. I've seen a few around. (laughs) (laughs) I'll buy my garden. (laughs) I'll pick them for you. That's a service. You know, we, at first, when we opened up, we mentioned how brokers have monetized, how it's gone from paper-based trading to electronic trading. What are some other changes that you've really noticed in the industry? Well, that, that it constantly changes. Mm. I mean, I've been at Canaccord the, all, the whole 26 years, and the firm has changed dramatically from that time, and it had changed a lot before then too. So un- understanding and keeping up with the change is really the key. Yeah. Specifically in Canada, 2022, we have new rules on Know Your Product that dovetails the original Know Your Client, which is part of what we were doing anyway. It's just formalized, and it's it's really not a huge change of our day-to-day, but it does change what we need to keep an eye on. Yeah. And what do you do, Do What kind of resources do you look to to stay informed and keep up to date? Is there certain newsletters that you stay tuned to without giving away all your secrets? <laughs> I'm a big funnel. I'll take info from everywhere. So yeah, a lot of emails in the mornings. Uh, we have a great team in Toronto that uh, feeds us a lot of stuff starting at 4 a.m. Pacific time. So, you know, when I get up in the morning, there's a lot to sift through, which is great. Kind of gets you right up to speed. And then, yeah, just from TV, whether it's uh, BNN, CNBC, Twitter, there's a lot of of things that help me stay on top of things. That's so cool. And you know what? So we saw each other at the Gravitas conference yesterday. Uh, I was thinking that about you uh, yesterday, just through our communication ever since we've met and you know, your openness to getting on the podcast and just seeing you out. I was literally thinking yesterday that you just seem like a very open guy who's uh, just willing to take in information. And, you know, honestly, I feel like there's so many people who do what you do that are so closed off and they've kind of got what works. And that's great, but it does prevent innovation from happening at times. So anyways, I was just thinking that yesterday about you and, and I appreciate that about you. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the, the research is you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. as things evolve and change, and crypto is a great example, it's constantly evolving. And when clients ask, what is Bitcoin? I think I wrote a blog about Bitcoin in 2016, 17. Mm. And it was you know, Bitcoin versus gold. And in Vancouver, people understand gold. 
didn't understand Bitcoin at the time, seemed a little topical, got a lot of traction with just sharing my thoughts because I, you know, I can be geeky, I get some of this tech <laughs> stuff. So it's, it's not hard for me to explain it to clients, but ultimately it's about taking inf information in, hopefully finding a, a gem of a company. And then when a client is looking for something, whether it's stable or risky, I've got a bigger toolbox to draw from. And that's why I'm always open to hearing new stories. Right. And speaking to your passion about tech, what industries in tech on the macro level do you see really evolving? And what are you most excited about over the next five to 10 years even? 10 years from now, we have no idea what tech's mm. going to look like. It's just, it evolves so fast. Yeah. The podcast will be virtual somewhere. I don't know. It'll be, yeah. <laughs> in the metaverse. Probably doing the metaverse now, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say exactly, of course, where everything's going, but you look at where biotech that, you know, and some of the, the nanotechnology, some of these really groundbreaking technologies are going. Gene therapy, these are broad stroke stuff totally. that can really move the needle as far as, you know, the human species, yeah. <laughs> let alone transportation and, and these other themes that are a little easier. Those are, those are evolutions of a current uh, structure. You know, electric cars, for example, it's just a gasoline car that runs on electricity. Nothing right. special about it, but it can help with, you know, long-term decarbonization. Yeah, well, and to your point about the biotech, I'm, I'm reading, uh, Tony Robbins just uh, published a book uh, this February. It's called Life Force. And exactly to all of these nanotechnologies, stem cells, peptides, rejuvenation, a lot of David Sinclair's the guy who's behind the book, why we age and why we don't have to. And it's just, it's incredible. Like this is today. What's happening today and available today is mind blowing. So like you said, in 10 years, who knows what we'll be capable of. And yeah, it's, it's something to be optimistic towards the future about for sure. Yeah. So when somebody comes to you with a business and asking you for your support, what are some of the check boxes that you need to tick in order for you to support and really believe in the company? Well, you know, when you've got a founder-led company, that's usually the, the gem when you've got yeah. the real passion behind it. And you find someone who's started something and really wants to help take it to the next level. Really all has to do with a, a sector that can generate revenue, recurring revenue, ideally, and have that growth potential at a reasonable valuation. It's one of those sticky parts where, you know, entry point matters. And... The idea of, I just got to own it, doesn't work in the long run. I've always had a value tilt to the way I, I invest and do things, even on large caps. And so, you know, that means you miss, you miss certain things because right. some companies never get cheap. But that's, that's part of the package. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's always nice when they have some skin in the game, too. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, that, would be, uh, that would be somewhat mandatory. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So can you walk me through, obviously, through everyone's career, there's high points and low points. Let's start with a low point and then we'll end with a high point. What was one of the times during your career where it was like, holy shit, what am I doing? This is definitely a low point. <laughs> yeah, there, there's one that was really interesting because it was in February of 2000. You probably don't remember those days, so I'll walk <laughs> for you. And the, the market had absolutely ripped. Specifically, a lot of tech stocks had yeah. run up from November through to February. And I was young. I think I was 25, 26, whatever at the time. And 
you know, I wanted to buy a house, so I'd sold basically everything, most of things that I had to generate the cash for a down payment. And then for another month, the market just kept going. It was yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous and goofy, and then it got goofier, and then it went to ludicrous speed. It just went beyond anything that I would have thought. And you look back and go, oh, yeah, it peaked in March, and that was it. But I can remember my feeling in early March with this what have I done feeling. Mm. And that has been really interesting because I've seen that happen many times where you buy shares in a company, the price goes down. There's still belief it'll recover and come back. It's okay. If you sell shares and the price goes up, there's this empty sinking feeling that you'll never recover that money somehow. Right. And it's a, it's a weird psychology, even though the numbers are the same. You should have the same feeling, but you don't. <laughs> when you sell and, and it goes higher, there's, there's an interesting psychological effect. And that really creates a low point because it's what you could have done, but right. of course didn't. And I've definitely carried that forward to ensure clients' headspace is in the right place when things are going great. Because right. if we go greater... They got to be willing to accept that. Yeah, it's amazing how much psychology plays into this. It's it's wild. So then, could you walk me through some of the high points then? Well, I think the high points really come down to getting behind a story, finding a company that you love and that needs your help. Your clients also get on board with the thought that it's a great company and let's help them. Maybe even take them public from really, really early stages and then have that company get bought out as a big exit years later. That is really when you can take a company from beginning to end all the way through. Right. That is really quite the high point. The first sort of bigger one that ever happened with me with was a company called Pier One Networks. It was a, you know, financing that was done in 2001. So post, actually 2002, I think is probably the time we finished it. But it was a long slog of a financing because it was tech after tech had, the bubble had popped. But it was a solid business, survived for seven or eight years, and eventually was a great takeout. And it was, you know, clients still look back on uh, that one as probably one of the, the, the smoother highs. That, Interesting. Uh, that's gone. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So, Peter, this has been great. If our viewers want to catch you anywhere and follow what you're up to, where can they do so? Twitter's probably where I'm sharing the most. Um, okay. Twitter's kind of become a thing back when the financial crisis hit in 2008. I kind of went there to try and find out what's going on. Little did I know that Twitter had just launched. <laughs> so I've been there <laughs> from its early days. And it just became a repository of stuff I read, stuff I see. Right. So that, you know, Tyler, when I see you walking around and, and you say, oh, hey, can you send me that report that you're talking about? I just have to go to my Twitter feed to find it. You know, there's not a pile of paper in the desk at work. It's, it's all digital. So that's where, you know, I'm definitely sharing uh, thoughts and ideas. Beyond that, website, and I'm always available, phone call, emails, and face-to-face. -face. I mean, uh, <laughs> Beautiful. We're all humans, and, and we've all been so distant. I'm a big supporter of, of meeting safely. But yeah. And well, once again, that's, that's totally what I appreciate about you as well is, is the willingness to, and just openness to that. And I think so much success comes out of that. So on that note, thanks so much, Peter, for joining us. And for any viewers out there, 
If they want to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode, please tune in next time.